0: Here we go. We're gonna get kooky. <laughs> Hip, hop, hop, hap, happy, hippie, witchy, not bitchy, witch, witchy, witch, we do it every day. Hey, Yay. magic with a K. Treating naysayers to some sass. Teaching witch haters they can kiss our ass. We know as above, so below, so we go. To know, to dare, to will, to be. Shh. Magic's not a destination, it's our natural orientation. Magic's who we are, made of space, you're a star. Magic's what we do, me and you, whoop-a-doo, Hippie Witch, season two. Man, that that was a good one. Hi! Thanks for joining me for episode 459 of Hippie Witch, Magic for a New Age. My name is Joanna DeVoe, and I am the groovy creatrix behind Kick-Ass Witch, Putting the K in Magic, and Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. I also have a free ebook by that name, Hippie Witch, Peace, Love, and all that good shit, and you can pick up a copy of that at www.joannadevoe.com, Or back on the description page for this episode, back on Blog Talk Radio, where you will also find a link to today's special guest, Lilith Dorsey, the author of Orishas, Goddesses, and Voodoo Queens, as well as a book called Love Magic, and the African American Ritual Cookbook. She's a dancer, and an artist, and a teacher, and if you don't know her work already, I think You are going to love this, especially if you have an interest in the Orishas or voodoo or African spiritual traditions for the modern practitioner. It's good stuff. When I personally, a person who knows very, very little about voodoo, which this interview will soon reveal, when I think of voodoo, I think of two things. The first that comes to mind is the legendary New Orleans queen, voodoo queen, Marie Laveau. And if Marie Laveau intrigues you, you will be happy to know that she has her own section in Lilith's books. So definitely check that out. The second thing that comes to mind is my beloved cat, Voodoo, one of several black cats that I have had special I'll say special relationships with throughout my life I don't know what's up with me and black cats I know it's a witchy cliche to have a black cat but I have had one with me for most of my time here on this planet this go-round Jingle Sparky Voodoo Otis Stanley they have walked beside me since preschool literally and my dear cat buddy Voodoo, who kept me company through the second half of my 20s and the first half of my 30s. That was her name. And now I'm wondering, was naming my black cat Voodoo an act of cultural appropriation? Especially because at the time, all I knew of the religion Voodoo was whatever had been portrayed in pop culture. We talk about cultural appropriation in this interview because I don't know how to talk about voodoo or any African spiritual tradition without going there. So we went there and I totally stepped in it when I tried to bring up why a white person who has no ancestral ties to Africa. I'm not speaking of myself, but I am speaking for other white people. (laughs) Why one of these white people? who I should not be speaking for, why, if they have no ancestral ties to Africa, might be charmed by the richness of that culture and feel tempted to take it on as their own. I tried to explain... To white-splain, oh my God, how do we stop the white-splaining? I hate when I literally hear it coming out of my face. (laughs) I try to explain how many of us new-agey types who left the Christianity we grew up in are prone to feeling a kind of spiritual homelessness. So when we see a culture with that depth and power and heritage, it's awfully appealing and she replied with what was basically hello black people who are descended from enslaved africans feel that way too maybe even more so spiritually homeless we literally cannot trace our roots back more than a few generations she said it much more kindly than that but that's how i interpreted it so noted Noted. Never say that again. At least not in that way with white people centered in the story. And I think that's what many people are afraid of right now. People who are white and are pushing back on Black Lives Matter. I am not one of those people, so I'm just guessing here. But I think that they are afraid that they will no longer be centered in the story. And they're right. They won't be. Cis, straight, able-bodied, white, Christian people are slowly horror of horrors being replaced by people. Just people. People of all colors and shapes and walks of life. A whole mix of people. And so... There's a learning curve we're all going through now as a society. Some folks will go with it, excited to experience the change, and others will fight it tooth and nail. But here's a tip Fighting is futile. It won't matter. You cannot stop this change. It is happening. This is the new way it is, and it's a beautiful thing. And hey, witches! <laughs> If you've ever lamented the time that you have spent hiding your spirituality in the closet or you're still living in the closet now, keep in mind, social justice for one is social justice for all. Getting hip to these changes now will be empowering for everyone, except those who deliberately oppress other people for profit. Those people are gonna have to find new ways to get their thumb on top, and they probably will. But in the meantime... We all get to take a leap forward. And I believe that much of the change that is happening right now will last and that it will benefit our descendants. This is our time to become the kind of kick-ass ancestors future generations can look back on with a smile. And I and I guess my brain wants to circle back to the word replaced. When I say cis, straight, able-bodied, white, Christian people are being replaced by. Just people, people of all colors and shapes and walks of life. I don't mean replaced as in there will be no more white people. I mean, there will be white people, there will be black people, there will be gay people, there will be transgender people, there will be Asian people, there will be Indian people, there will be Native American people, there will be all different kinds of people centered in the stories that we are seeing in the media And in real life and in our everyday conversations, we are making this switch. It's not about down with Whitey. (laughs) It's about, yay, we get to share this space with everyone. One of my favorite moments during this interview is when Lilith started talking about the Orishas. Because you can actually hear her light up like you just you can hear it coming through the microphone her passion is palpable and it kept reminding me of this song I Bay River I have that song on so many playlists do you know this song You must know this song. Come to your river, wash my soul. I will come to your river, wash my soul. I will come to your river, wash my soul again. Boom, 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 boom. Carry away my dead leaves. Let me baptize my soul with the help of your water. Sink my pains and complains. Let the river take them. River drown them. Please say you know what I'm doing right now. Because <laughs> it makes no sense if you don't. You definitely should follow the link in the show notes to hear that song. Obviously, they... I bet twin sisters sing it much better than I can, and the entire track is super magical. It gets me choked up at the end, too. I love the whole thing. It has such a groove to it, but there's this section at the end. It always gets me choked up. I loves it. I love it. I wish I had the right to play all my favorite songs on the podcast for you. But we don't have that kind of budget so the best i could do is just link to it and then speaking of music lilith is as i said among many other inspiring things a beautiful dancer so i will also link to one of the performances she did with one of her mentors john dr john not john dr john (laughs) just dr john she dedicated her book to dr john and spoke so fondly of him during this chat that I of course had to go look him up. And I found this video from 2011, I think, where she is dancing on stage and I thought you might wanna check that out too. Also, this interview was recorded a few weeks ago and because I am so entrenched currently in studying anti-racism, A lot of growth has already happened in that time. And to the point that some of what I said to Lilith makes me cringe. It makes me cringe. I actually cut out a sentence in which I described myself to her as a racist white woman. Oh my god. I was so aware of it coming out of my mouth. Racist white woman. I had to cut it out because... I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know. Am I racist? To what degree does one need to be harboring racist programming and ideas before the label racist applies? I certainly don't want to align myself with white supremacy or hateful bigots. So I just decided to err on the side of caution and cut it out. There's a chapter that really spoke to me from Austin Channing Brown's book, I Am Still Here. It's a chapter called Nice White People. And in it, she says, When you believe niceness disproves the presence of racism, it's easy to start believing bigotry is rare and that the label racist should only be applied to mean-spirited acts of discrimination. I am a nice white person, dang it. (laughs) So that... That chapter really spoke to me. And she also explains why it's so not cool to burden black people with our confessions of white guilt. And when I was listening back to edit this interview, there were a couple of sections where I thought, oh, my God, am I doing that to Lilith? And honestly, I cannot tell. I hope I didn't do that to Lilith. I apologize if I did that to Lilith. I was... Just really hyped up on this idea of owning up to our shit as a society and acknowledging the multi-generational conditioning so many of us are still, or just now, trying to unravel. And it is a tangled mess of shitty stereotypes perpetuated by the media, offensive jokes, fear, guilt, objectification, admiration. And so, yeah, I... I don't know. I may have unintentionally burdened this black voodoo woman with my confessions of my white liberal guilt, and now here I am confessing to you all my confessions, and it's it's a rabbit hole. <laughs> it's a rabbit hole, my friends, for real. But also, I can only show up as I am, and I want to keep showing up, and I want to get better as I go along, and to have... As uncomfortable as it can be, a kind of public evolution, to model a kind of public evolution as I shed old layers of ignorance. And according to my current understanding, the best way to do that is to be respectfully curious, ask questions when appropriate, and most of all, listen. Listen, listen, listen. So, you wanna learn voodoo. <laughs> Is voodoo right for you? I think this this interview might answer that question for you. I will say, if you want to learn voodoo, learn it from someone who has been initiated into that tradition and has sincerely been practicing for decades and prepare to get schooled, right? Because that's what you came for. That's what you sign up for when you want to study a tradition like that. And I promise we're about to get to this interview in just a few minutes here, but there's one more note that I want to make about one truly awkward, unflattering moment in this conversation that I was literally cringing at as the words were coming out of my mouth, and those words were, a big black man. And I wanted to give that a little bit of context. I had recently gotten into Emmanuel Acho's YouTube channel, Uncomfortable Conversations with the Black Man, which is such a great show. He teaches from his YouTube channel about implicit bias and all the hidden ways, the hidden but very real ways racism shows up in polite society. And I think it was the first, first episode he did in which he was talking about how he moves to the world as a black man and keep in mind this is a big black man I don't know how tall he is but the man is jacked he's got major muscles and to listen to him talk about how when he's going to get his mail he will sit in his car if he sees a white woman getting her mail because he doesn't want her to feel like he's a threat to hear that broke my heart and he talks about how if he's on an elevator with a white person he tries to hit the button first so that he can get off the elevator as soon as possible because he doesn't want to be perceived as a threat and I say it broke my heart but he's not speaking about it from a victim point of view he's just laying it out like matter of fact this is what I do this is how I move through the world this is how I have to move through the world to feel safe I proceed through life with caution when it comes to white people and that really made an impact on me and it was still very much on my mind when I had this conversation with Lilith so we went there I first shared that I am in certain situations just afraid of men in general, just I am afraid of men because of my history, because of the media, what have you, especially out on the street, and how a big white man would definitely scare me if if i I would cross the street if I saw him coming, especially if he had some kind of swagger going on, and then a big brown man or a big black man would scare me even more why even without the swagger why is that and then to layer fear on fear I didn't say this to Lilith but I'm saying it to you I would be scared of offending him by crossing the street when I saw him coming because I am to some degree aware that racism is playing a part in that fear and I wouldn't want him to think that I was crossing the street because of the color of his skin oh it's exhausting (laughs) FYI, if you truly are scared of a random stranger approaching you in the street, cross to the other side. Don't try to be polite. You can investigate why you were scared later. And and then if you find out racism was the instigating factor, you can learn to recognize the way that that feels, like the thoughts that racism comes with, so that you can then start to separate Out that racist fear-based impulse from your true intuition. Intuition should always be followed. That's real guidance. But the trick is in learning to discern the voice of programmed fear from the voice of spirit. Lilith wrote an article a few years back called Voodoo, Beyonce, Racism, and Resistance. And I am going to link to that in the show notes too. All the links, all the links. I hope you'll check them out because I recommend reading that article to learn about the kind of weird, under-the-radar bigotry that she had to deal with as an author when she was just trying to promote her book, The African American Ritual Cookbook, on social media. It's it's a little bit shocking. And I especially love the last line of that article, because she refers to herself as an unapologetically black voodoo woman who fights, hopes, and prays for a better tomorrow. I love that. I I feel like being unapologetically who you are is where it's at in terms of spiritual badassery and personal strength. So without further fluff, here is an unapologetically black voodoo woman who fights, hopes, and prays for a better tomorrow. Hi Lilith. Welcome to Hippie Witch. Hi, thank you for having me here. I'm excited to get to talk to you about your new book, Orishas, Goddesses, and Voodoo Queens, and all the other amazing things that you have going on. I've never had someone on the show who specializes in the things that you specialize in, and some of it is intimidating to me, so I'm looking forward to getting, hopefully, some scoop on some terminology and practices For those of us who really don't understand, for example, the difference between voodoo and hoodoo, that's one question that I have, but welcome and is there anything you want to say just to get us started here?
1: I just want to say you don't need to be intimidated. I'm an old hippie. I did Dead Tour for years, so you know I <laughs> I'm easy to talk to, and I'm excited to talk about these topics.
0: Oh, good! I'm I'm so excited. If you say the word hippie, I'm instantly more comfortable.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Well, for me, I just am so curious, specifically about some of the ter- terminology that you use, like African diasporic, for example.
1: What does that mean? Okay, African diasporic is the people that Left Africa, you know, so most of it was enforced through slavery and things like that. But, you know, it has to do with the religions as they're practiced outside of Africa because, you know, there's still different traditions going on in Africa that are similar. But here in, you know, America and, and the Caribbean and stuff like that, it definitely took on a slightly different character. So mm-hmm. that's what I talk about when I say Afro diaspora, but nobody knows what that means anymore. You're not in the minority. <laughs>
0: That's why I think it's fun to talk about this, because in the magical community, we have a long tradition of cultural appropriation, which I also don't understand the parameters of. I definitely can understand it in terms of fashion, for example. I get what that is in fashion, but when it comes to being a magical practitioner, I do not understand. I feel some things I understand better than others, but... I think it's interesting to speak to what I think is a majority white audience right now. I know we have a very mixed group of listeners, but just judging from kind of the inner circle of people that show up, I would say more than 50% of us are white and are really curious about the kinds of things that I'm curious about. So can we circle back to hoodoo and voodoo? These both come to varying degrees, I believe, from African traditions. Is that
1: right? The practices that are known as Vodou or voodoo primarily started in West Africa, mostly Benin. It's still practiced there today. Vodou was the variant that was practiced in Haiti. To me, I mean, I think we talk about, you mentioned Afro-Diaspora, that has to do with the religions outside of Africa. A lot of people now explain them as African traditional religions, would incorporate things like voodoo and hoodoo and stuff like that. I think the main difference that people need to understand is that voodoo and voodoo are much more formalized practices. You know, you join a spiritual house, You have teachers who you view as your almost like your parents, you know what I mean? You take care of them, and they take care of you, and it's that kind of system. There's a lot of different things to learn. There's recipes and dances and prayers and songs and drum rhythms and all of that stuff. Whereas hoodoo, I think probably most people who are more familiar with witchcraft, it's much more of like a hedge witch practice. It's more folk magic. It's more, oh, well, you know, my great-grandmother or this old lady I knew out in the swamps told me that if I took plantain and rubbed it on my mosquito bites, then they would go away. It's things like that that are very sort of solution-oriented as opposed to, you know, dealing with deities or spirits or energies and and rituals and initiations and things like that.
0: Okay. And you have, you yourself have been through several formal initiations and i love that you say you take a scholarly approach and decades of experience with you when you're creating a book like orisha's goddesses and voodoo queens that's important to note
1: yeah i mean i think you really have to go through both you know i i had another friend of mine who's an author today talk about how oh well everybody always tells me anybody can do it and it's okay and things like that and you know but to my knowledge he's not initiated in the tradition and when you get initiated different things come with that similarly I'm an anthropologist I did my undergrad and my grad in anthropology so when I approach something I do it from a very wide perspective. I have first-person sources. Just because one person says something, I don't automatically assume that's true. I have to see it in a bunch of contexts. And then I also try to be really respectful and honoring of the people and the traditions that I'm talking about.
0: Yes. How do we do that? How do we do that as people who maybe have an eclectic practice spiritually and magically? How Do we approach that spiritually? I'll just use myself as an example. In my history as a spiritual, magical person, I have incorporated both the Wiccan Wheel and Lunar New Year into my calendar, into the celebrations that I do with my son We celebrate WESAC, I've worked with Buddha, Ganesh, Athena, none of which are related to me ancestrally as far as I know. I have smudged my home with sage. So are these things inappropriate for me?
1: I mean, I think there's are certain a lot of indigenous people who would say that saging, if you didn't have that kind of heritage, was something that's inappropriate. But then it gets, it's not just a generalized thing. I think that a lot of times people are talking about, what kind of sage are you using? Are you using white sage? Is it a plant that's protected? Are you just using the sage from your kitchen? You know, what else is going on there? For me, the cultural appropriation, I draw the line really when somebody starts making money off of it. Because... Because... Because for me, I think that there's gonna be somebody who wants to buy, say, you know, a reading or a candle or something, you know. And if somebody who's white and doesn't have the heritage is, is selling the same kind of services that I'm selling that are based on my heritage, another white person might feel more comfortable going to them. And then very quickly, you can see how the black people get written out of their own practices. And that's what I think most people are afraid of.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, I get that. And if a white person writes a book that they're not taking a scholarly approach, and they don't have the history and they don't have the heritage, then you have all the people who are reading that book.
1: Who Yeah, and deciding that that's what truth is and that's what the experience is. And I really think that's very limited. Like I said, you know, I didn't study this stuff and practice it for the past 30 years because I thought, oh, well, that'll be fun. Let me turn around and, you know, sell it. And I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, it took a long time. I started writing with the Oshu newsletter, which I believe we started in 89 or 90. So almost 30 years ago now, you know, and that was just based on, getting the information out there we had a lot of really wonderful people writing for us we had a lot of wonderful authors and artists and it was just okay well this is your experience i would love to help people share their own experience with the orishas and the loa done in a proper way you know and 30 years later and here i am
0: mm-hmm. are we talking about the ocean african magical quarterly
1: yes that was the newsletter i started yeah way back when
0: Wow, that's so cool. You have a long history of interesting, interesting things that you have done. I don't even know how to talk about all of that. So we'll just hang here for a minute (laughs) with with the Orishas.
1: What are they? Okay, The Orishas, I mean, the way I understand it, again, other people may understand it in a different way, but for me, it comes down to the, the word literally has to do with Ori, which means head, and Sha, which is the root word for which is a sort of universal life force and energy that goes. all things. I've heard people that are from the Western world talk about it as similar to chi, you know, that kind of Asian concept where everything has its own energy and kind of character and I think this is is something similar to what we're talking about, but in that way, the Orisha can, let's say the Orisha Oshun, who I mentioned, she's the Orisha of love and beauty and money and marriage and all those good things, but she's also literally the ashe of the river, so that energy that you have when you're next to the river, that's her energy. She's also the ashe of a sunflower, so the feeling you get when you see a sunflower or a field of sunflowers or have some sunflowers around you in your home, that feeling is also her energy. So I think it's something that's very different than, you know, you mentioned some some of the Greek gods and stuff like that. They don't necessarily have that. Yes, Athena can have this as, you know, one of her offerings, but she's not the offering, but for us Oshun is the same thing as the offering or the sacred site. In nature.
0: Mm, Yes. When I was reading through your book too, I really enjoyed the elemental representation. I'm a person that struggles sometimes. It depends. Sometimes I struggle with like the anthropomorphism that happens because I I left my religion of Christianity in my late teens. I kind of had this attitude of like, why do I need another God? Why do I need another face of God? It's evolved over time, but it's really useful for me to think of gods and goddesses as energy and archetypes that you can tap into. So I think you did a really beautiful job of presenting it in a way that is accessible from a number of angles that
1: way yeah because I think everybody's experience is different you know there's going to be people out there that only see Oshun as like this woman who has all these stories about her stories about how she's an amazing dancer and all these stories about her love life and everything like that and there's definitely people who will see it more directly in a way of you know just a, a place in nature or a feeling in nature
0: mm-hmm yeah is this Appropriate for white people to take on as part of their own practice, or should we read your book just because we're curious and we want to learn about another culture?
1: I think it's complicated. There's obviously people who will say, "Oh, white people don't belong in the religion." And what I usually say to that is, "Well, get a reading." You know, I have a dear friend who's white who's a babalawo, a priest of Ifa actually have a couple but um you know they got the reading and the orisha said this is how they were supposed to proceed you know so you never know what's going to happen somebody else could go and sit down on the mat and get the reading and it could be no this isn't appropriate for you you know i have a friend who went to my priestess here in new orleans priestess miriam from the spiritual temple and she told her go away you're slavic you should do some slavic witchcraft and now she has the largest slavic witchcraft website out there so it's the these kinds of things where, you know, it could be a yes, it could be a no. I think that it's okay to go to the river and it's okay to try and feel the energy that you get there. That's very different than you turn around three days later or five days later and go and publish an ebook about it, that you sell the people, you know, about your experiences with Ocean because everybody should think you're so special. That's something that's totally different. (laughs) I get a reputation as an angry priestess and I, I don't mean to do that. I'm just saying that, you know, it's the reason it's not the same as the Greek goddesses and goddesses is because We've had a continuous worship, so it's the same kind of thing where, okay, so for over 2,000 years, Oshun has been offered these herbs and these songs and these dances and these flowers and all of these things, and if you belong to a tradition and you belong to a spiritual house, then they'll teach you those things, and that's a lot easier than trying to make it up, and if you try and make it up, you might get some of it wrong because there are rights and wrongs in this tradition.
0: And you're tapping into all of that energy, that history, if, if you approach it in the way that you're suggesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's a good thing. I mean... I always equate it to cooking because I'm a big foodie. You know what I mean? And you could go in the kitchen, you could just create a recipe and it could taste delicious. Or you could create a recipe and you could decide salt was better than sugar and you didn't know the difference and it could taste like crap, you know? My daughter went to restaurant school. She went to an Ivy League restaurant school and she came home and she showed me how to cut an onion. Now I'm a good cook and my whole life, up until then, I was cutting an onion the wrong way. So (laughs) now I know how to cut an onion. (laughs) And it makes everything so much easier. You know, why, why would you do that? Why would you make your life so much more difficult? You know, you don't need to necessarily smash this system because the system has a lot of good things in it.
0: I love that you incorporate food into the book. There are recipes. And then you've also written, as far as I know, I think a couple of cookbooks. I know there's the African-American ritual cookbook.
1: Yes, that's my one that's just a straight up cookbook that people can get. It's an ebook that I did years ago because I kept making all this food for peace and people were like, I want the recipe. I want the recipe. So I decided to just put some of the simple recipes that people could use in there. It's a short book. And then there's a lot of recipes in my book, love magic, a lot of aphrodisiac recipes that I put together.
0: Yes. I definitely wanted to mention that too. It's a book of spells and potions and love magic for people listening is the title
1: that the African-American ritual cookbook. I'm curious about the word ritual. Well, these, like I said, these were recipes that I had made for rituals and things like that. You know, there's traditional foods for the Orisha and the Loa and the ancestors. And I put those, you know, there's traditional heritage recipes from here in New Orleans that I put in there too, from other places in the world where people worship the Orisha and the Loa. So I kind of put all of that stuff in there because these were traditional recipes that were used by us. That is so cool. How far are you able to trace your, or are you able to trace your ancestry back? Well, it's really interesting. My aunt came and she joined my spiritual house maybe, I want to say probably three or four years ago. And it was so funny because I never met my great grandmother and my, my grandmother on that side of my when I was two, I think. So I had no real memory of them, but I made these recipes and my auntie was like, oh my gosh, those are the same recipes that your great-grandmother used to make, you know? So somehow through all of the exploration and trial and error and just listening to what they were saying to me, I found, you know, the right recipes to have in there, you know? But then there were also... My priestess taught me her recipes and and just over the years going to things and doing things and and seeing what it was that people were eating associated with the Orisha and the Loa and the rituals because it's a big, we're really big on feast days, you know, they go with the Catholic calendar. I think that was one of the ways people were sort of allowed to slip them into the norm without drawing attention to themselves. There are people out there that are still Christian and also practice these religions. So that's not something that's against things. But I think that originally, if we talk about 200 years ago or something, they weren't allowed to openly practice these religions. So it was a lot easier for them to say, oh, okay, well, we have Oshun, and that's similar to Carrie Dodd-Del Cobre, and we're going to have a feast for Oshun on the same day as Carrie Dodd-Del Cobre because she has the same character. She has a little boat like the river you know, all these things that are very similar. So it allowed them to sort of use that in a way that they wouldn't necessarily be discovered.
0: Yeah, this is, you just touched on something I definitely wanted to explore a bit here. I mean, I think a lot of pagan traditions were, we piece them together that way now, like what, you know, because a lot of different cultures they had to Subvert kind of their religion, but hide it. hide it in the calendar. You talk about secrecy and syncretism. One question that I have long had specifically about the black community in America. I'm starting to get answers around this. But because Christianity was the religion of the colonizers, I've long been curious about how maybe you cannot speak to this because as far as I know, you're not a Christian, but how black Christians have made peace with that and then claimed Jesus for themselves. And my first gut instinct would be to want to reject that religion that was used as a tool to to punish us relentlessly. Austin Channing Brown's book, I'm Still Here, definitely helped me understand better, like the power of black Jesus and black churches, And I know it's complex and personal and individual, but that's something that I'm curious about. You know, I think like hoodoo is one of those traditions that is so blended.
1: Well, I mean, hoodoo does use a lot of the Bible and things from the Bible. But again, for me, I think that you can use the Bible without being Christian. And I know that sounds like sort of a paradox, but for me, there's magic in the words, you know? Like if you say the psalm, and this is what a lot of Hoodoo practitioners do, they'll say a certain Psalm out loud to bring change. And that for me is less about this is a Christian Psalm and more about the power of those words just the sound of those words and the vibration of those words going out into the universe and also the power of so many people using that psalm as a prayer for so many years that gives it more power for a long time a lot of people especially enslaved africans were not allowed another book besides the bible so if you were going to try and have something that was going to be a magical textbook this is the only book you had so it had to be a magical textbook I grew up going to a Lutheran school, ironically, and so I certainly know enough about Christians specific, and my family was Catholic before I came along, very lapsed Catholics. But, you know, I still (laughs) knew enough about what it was. I heard enough about it to understand it. I I think that, especially now, a lot of younger people, a lot of millennials are really sort of coming back to African traditional religion and and not holding with Christianity as much. But the church was such a big part of the community, I think. and, And that's what a lot of the older people are missing that they had that in their life. And the church did so many things for them. And it's something that they hold on to and something that they really got something out of because Mm -hmm. it was such a stronghold in the community.
0: Yeah. And some beautiful gospel music came out of that culture as well. It's just fascinating to me how the spirit of enslaved Africans, people that were taken from their home and brought here and, tortured relentlessly that that spirit remained in their music and their food and their love for each other and I still sense that today I imagine it must have been very very powerful 100 200 years ago
1: yes yes I mean you know we we certainly see things like Harriet Tubman's story my good friend which Dr. Utu wrote a book called Conjuring Harriet Tubman you know this connection between christianity and the christian way of doing things and that was really part of getting them free so this is something that they held on to so this is i think why it's very if if something gets you your freedom then it's it's hard to let go of it and if something does a lot of really good things for you it's hard to let go of it you know and Mm -hmm. i don't necessarily think you have to like i said i have god children that study with me and they're also christians and i have other god children who think that's crazy and they don't understand how they can do that so (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's fun to talk about, in my opinion, because, I mean, we have Christian witches, and that brings up all kinds of, you know, you cannot be a Christian witch. Christians will say this, witches will say this, and yet there are Christian witches. So what do you mean you can't be this thing that people are saying they are?
1: Well, yes, my Haitian Mambo, Mambo Bonnie Devlin, is also a UU minister, so she has been very vocal about, you know, this has always said, this is who she is. And when I first met her, I was teaching at a UU church, different kinds of spirituality, because they're very open to alternative ways of, of connecting with deity. And, you know, she came in and she would do the Sunday service. And then afterward, we would have a drum circle and, you know, I would dance and it would be great. So for me, it's not necessarily something that's against each other, but I understand both sides of the argument
0: same I do too I feel as somebody I can trace my ancestry back I have hundreds of years yet I reject the religion that I grew up in but I just love my family to pieces and I think a lot of people that gravitate toward new age spirituality will say and and witchcraft and things like that, there's a sense for white people, particularly those of us that kind of identify as like mutts. We, we don't know what we are, right? Like we, we're a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and a little bit of this. We don't really have that sense of history and ancestry and tradition. You can feel a little bit spiritually homeless is maybe a good way to put it. So when you see somebody who's practicing something and you see the, Joy it brings them, and the power and the spirituality. It seems so soulful. It is tempting to then be like, I want to get me some of that. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I can see that. I can see that totally. I mean, I think there's a lot of Black people that don't. You know, I mean, our history and our records are gone, so I think there's a lot of Black people that certainly don't know what it was. Unfortunately, you know, like you said about my ancestors, I can't go back. Then my further than my great-grandparents. Although my aunt did find some great-great-grandparents, I think, which was a little fascinating to me the other day. It's it's hard. It's hard, you know, and there's so many different variations of things. You know, you mentioned hoodoo, which is what a lot of them ended up with because they didn't necessarily have the opportunities to practice something that was more formalized. But there's Afro-Latinx people who are in Lakumi or Santeria, there is you know Afro-Haitian people that are in Vodou. There's so many different variations. Afro-Brazilian people in Candomblé. You know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And I definitely did not mean to imply that that is a white issue that we feel kind of spiritually homeless because I know it's a bigger issue for people whose ancestors were enslaved because their history was completely destroyed. I love that the conversation's becoming more nuanced and more nuanced and more nuanced. So to say like African-American is not applying to all black Americans because they maybe come from different areas. And it's good to have those conversations in the spiritual community too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it was something that people were afraid of and so many of these issues about cultural appropriation and things like that have not been something that people really wanted to talk about, not talk about openly anyway, you know? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I think 2020 has been a year that has compelled a lot of people to feel humbled and grace maybe is the best way I can say it. We're like okay, I don't know. I'm definitely doing this wrong. Help me understand. I think a lot of us have that attitude of just listening and learning and asking questions and being willing to make a fool of yourself because we really want to know. And
1: I'm loving those conversations. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I do a... Well, we started out doing a cultural appropriation panel discussion about, I want to say, we've been doing it for four years now at an event that I do in upstate New York, and it's going to be online this year. It's a place called Serious Rising. And we started out doing it cultural appropriation and privilege. But we had already decided last year that we were going to throw that out the window and just call it the racism panel because I'm happy about the conversations. But those early years, so much of the conversation was about, oh, I don't see color or you're just Lilith to me, you know, and and for us, that was so... In a way, it's a form of like passive racism, because it's not that I'm saying it's like the all lives matter argument. You know, it's not that I'm saying that you're not a person. It's that I'm saying I value being a black person. And it's also dangerous to be a black person. So these two things are something that we never get to forget. You know, there's that I used to watch a lot of Mel Brooks when I was a kid. And one of my favorite movies was Blazing Saddles pretty raunchy but he's got the scene where he's like you know washing his hands and he's like it's not coming off you know what I mean it doesn't come off we have our skin color no matter where I go and that's always going to mean that I'm viewed in a different light and and you know, I have to accept that, but I can also celebrate that I am resilient, like you mentioned, and and the people who came before me were strong enough and smart enough and resourceful enough to make sure I lived, you know, and I'm here today to talk to people about things.
0: Yeah. Yes. I like to imagine as well that they're proud and and loving what's happening right now, because otherwise you know, their pain and what they went through is, I I like to think that they can appreciate what their sacrifices created and what we're experiencing
1: today. I hope so. I hope so. There's been all this talk lately about, you know, we are not our ancestors. Well, is that disrespectful? Isn't it disrespectful? And for me, the only reason I would say we're not our ancestors is because despite how crappy it is and despite I still could get shot because I give somebody a bad $20 bill, I still also had the opportunity to get my master's degree. I'm living in a house that I own. All of these things, I think it wasn't easy for me, but it would have been virtually impossible for my ancestors to do 100 years ago.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah kind of bringing it back to the spiritual community, we have, I mean, an explosion. It's so cool to see of all these different traditions that you talk about, being represented in places that they were not represented before. And I'm thinking of the Melanade Stand Tarot deck of which you are the Hierophant card. There's a <laughs> lot of tarot decks coming out featuring all kinds of, you know, queer people, people that don't identify as one gender, or the other people of color, people of different spiritual traditions. And for me... <laughs> Yeah, this is that section that I said I cut out because I didn't want to label myself as a racist white woman. I have internalized racism in a very subtle way that I would be offended if you called me a racist. I'm sure even to this day, but especially a few years back, I didn't ever have the thought, why are all tarot cards white people? There's a lot of tarot decks out in the world. So I only had that realization when I started seeing these other decks come out and going, oh, yeah, there was no representation or very little representation over here.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I grew up and there were none, really. I mean, the first... African-American-based tarot I ever saw was the New Orleans Voodoo Tarot, which was not done by African people, but actually does feature people with dark skin, done by my priest Louis Martinet and Sally Ann Glassman, who's a very popular priestess here in New Orleans. But I am so happy to see decks like Dusta Onyx Tarot. Mm. Um, I love Courtney Alexander. It's an amazing book. She's an amazing artist. She came to stay with me for a while. We had a great time hanging out. Uh, (laughs) it was an honor for me to be in a melonade stand deck. Um, I'm actually in two decks, but that one was really focused on brown women and black women. And, and I think that's definitely something that we didn't get to see ourselves in decks before. And we certainly didn't get to see ourselves in decks that were created by black women or women that were anything up, down, anybody of color, you know? Yeah, so. and
0: not, not skinny, not white. Like it was very, very specific,
1: yeah definitely, definitely she 's all about body positivity and everything like that, and I love it and it 's just so nice, you know because I when my daughters were little i didn 't have anything to give them. We never published it, but we came out with an Arisha coloring book now I think there's a couple more out there, but uh, you know i couldn 't give them anything to play with. It was hard enough to find a black doll, you know, so i 'm just so happy that little girls now can have these images. And they can have something. I remember once I was showing a little girl that I was watching a statue of Oshun, Carrie Dodd Cobra, and she was so used to the princesses that she saw in the Disney movies and stuff like that. She's like, it's a Disney princess. You know? (laughs) (laughs) you know and i think that it's just yeah they are princesses and, and queens and african queens and to see that in front of you and to have that image and know you look like that and you don't have to look like you know i grew up with cinderella and snow white i ain't never gonna look like that so to have something that you know is beautiful and other people see is beautiful that looks like you is fantastic courtney alexander or another um friend of mine, a black woman from the community, but she said, you know, tell black girls you like their hair. And I'm like, I always do tell them I like their hair. And then they tell me they like my hair back, which I just think is so special. I grew up with nobody liked my hair. You know, my nobody knew what to do with my hair. They chopped it off. It was just this thing of, you know, I mean, we still had laws in this country as of last year that you know, it made it illegal for a kid to go to school with their hair the way it comes out of their head. Like, what is this? You know?
0: Yep. Yep. A lot of it is ignorance, I think, in terms of the general population. I think, was it hair love? Are you familiar? Oh, yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. It won an Oscar and it was beautiful. And it was really about black girl's hair and a dad's love. It was so beautiful. But I think we're in an education process. For me, it really started with, I think, fashion magazines because I love fashion and starting to see, I remember feeling very excited about it when it first started happening. And I still get a kick out of my magazines are filled with black and brown women looking beautiful and gorgeous. And now men are making their way into it. And I find it expands my own personal scope on what is beautiful It's a loving message for everyone, not just people that see themselves reflected in it because it expands what beauty is. And and it shouldn't, maybe. I don't know if that... It doesn't matter if it should or shouldn't because it does. Maybe that's
1: what I mean. Well, yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, I've done a lot of media studies and things like that. and, And media is another thing that, you know, no, we shouldn't believe what we see on television or in a movie or in a fashion magazine, but we do. And just by virtue of exposure of it, and if we never see these things, it's not going to be something that we can identify with or explore or anything like that. So I'm happy that people are making different choices. You know, I think I saw the other day that they just put up a giant billboard in New York, I think it was Calvin Klein did, of a black trans person. So I'm like, yay, you know, like I never saw that. I grew up with you know, Brooke Shields, and like, you know, yeah. she turned sideways, she disappeared, you know, so that that was what people were telling me. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's pretty cool to see, I have to say. I want to
0: talk about so many things with you, because you have a fascinating history. You're an amazingly creative person, and I'm very curious about the choreography and dance, and your filmmaking. Is there anything in particular, that you want to talk about? Because I'm here for all of it.
1: Well, I guess since we're talking about the book, I dedicated the book to Dr. John, the jazz musician, whose uh, real name is Mac Rabinac. Everybody called him Mac. But, you know, he was more like a dad to me. And I, no offense to his children or his grandchildren, whom several of which I know, but he was just always, my own father was really lousy. And when I started working for Mac as a choreographer and a dancer, it was just such a beautiful thing, you know, because he was always so spiritual and so respectful of me and the practices. And it was such an amazing thing for me to see. Cause you know, he, he started telling people he was a practitioner back in the seventies. Now, nobody did that back in the seventies, you know, like, so he's such a, a groundbreaking visionary And when I came to work for him, he wanted me to do the voodoo dances for him that they used to do back in Marie Laveau's time. And I think that I got the gig because I said, well, they were dances that were for transformation and change, but they were also dances that were for resistance and revolution. You know, there's movements in it where you pretend to be soldiers and then you do this movement like you're chopping the heads off of the soldiers. So this was like, okay, you know, they knew that by watching this dance that we were going to go and try and escape that night or try and get rid of the bad police. And I think that this is something that today we realize we still have to do. So it was fascinating to me that I could do that and, and I could be up there, you know, we were at Bonnaroo and Jazz Fest and be able to do these things in front of thousands of people
0: that dedication is beautiful too I loved it
1: yeah I miss him I miss him we just had the one year anniversary of his death on June 6th so but I got to go to his mural with a dear friend of mine who was very close to him and his granddaughter and you know lots of his friends and and just sort of celebrate his life it was really nice Mm -hmm.
0: what is a voodoo zombie silent rave
1: Oh, all right. So <laughs> I'm I have to know. It's very important business. <laughs> We did. We had a voodoo zombie silent rave. Okay, so, I mean, I I think it was my commentary on so many times, you know, not just at pagan and witchcraft events, but everywhere we go, that we're in our own little world. You know what I mean? We're not really interacting with people. Or, I'm an introvert, and I'm really shy. So, you know, right now I go to an event. They put in my contract, must talk to people at the event for three hours a day. You know, (laughs) and it's not... (laughs) because. I'm trying to be, I'm like, I feel so seen. It's not because I, I, you know, I'm just a private person and I'm shy and, and, you know, things like it's, it's hard for me sometimes to be around a lot of people. And I think this is something a lot of people will feel, you know? So there's a way in which we all sort of zombify ourselves by tuning out. silent rave is, is a rave that where people all have their own music on the headphones. And That way everybody can listen to their own thing and still be together at a party. So it's like you can stay in your own little zone and you can still be part of things, you know? So we wanted to do a rave because for the ancestors because I think, especially we're in a public setting, it's hard to get everybody on the same page. Some people know what's going on, some people don't. So I usually do something for the ancestors and celebration for the ancestors because everybody, it's a good place to start, I think. Most people at least know some of their ancestors and have some kind of ancestor worship going on so we had an ancestor party but everybody could bring their own music and stuff like that and then we did (laughs) we did a a little thriller flash mob it was great
0: oh that sounds so fun did you notice any kind of entrainment happening if everybody's listening to their own music and moving to the beat of their own whatever's in their earbuds did you notice that syncing up at all?
1: not really I don't know if it was the people who were there (laughs) it was chaos but it was fun (laughs) yeah it was chaos and it was fun Yeah, yeah yeah Oh,
0: I love that it's funny too I think dancing is a great outlet for an introvert because you can kind of go inside your own dance bubble in a way and still perform
1: for other people have you found that that was true for you yeah, definitely. And it's funny, I could see it in myself, but my Santo priestess, Oshun Lakari When I first met her, she was, I thought she was some very strange person who just like was in her own world, dancing in front of the drums and not interacting with any people. And I was like, well, I don't know if I like her, you know, (laughs) I started to have this own narrative about who she was in my head. And when I finally talked to her, I learned she was the sweetest, kindest person, you know, and when I got to know her, I realized she has PTSD. I have PTSD. It's hard to relate to people at some times. You know, like you said, dance, they they say that trauma and dance go hand in hand, literally, you know what I mean? Like, if you've experienced any kind of trauma, dance is definitely something that's healing for people who have to experience that. So it was fascinating to me. And it really was probably one of the biggest life lessons she taught me just that, you know, not to have those preconceived notions, just because somebody was standing there and they were beautiful and they were dancing so lovely and they didn't really talk to me that it didn't mean they were a nasty person. They had their own thing going on, you know, and I'm sure I come across that way to people. People tell me they're nervous about me or, or whatever they think I'm unapproachable or something, you know, and it's really probably because I'm shy or I'm, Having my own little ptsd moment or something that i'm not being like hey how are you you know because <laughs>
0: that's
1: yes. not how i am <laughs> yes
0: yes i my mom talks about that she which is funny because i see her as an extrovert but she had a big scar wrapped around her face and head all through school and it made her very self-conscious and shy and she's since outgrown that but when she went back to high school reunions people said they thought she was a snob and it shocked her because that never even occurred to her you know she was just really shy and self-conscious but
1: people thought she was aloof yep yep that's what people think. you know so so yeah if anybody sees me out there and I'm not extra extra friendly (laughs) I apologize in advance I think actually that ties in as well
0: to something I've been learning about internalized racism bringing it back to that and how Men in particular, I will say as a woman, I am afraid of men. If I'm out and about and I see a man, yeah. my, guard, my guard goes up. My guard goes up twice as big if I encounter like a group of black men or a group of Mexican men. And I've had to ask myself, why is that? And it has a lot to do with the media. It has a lot to do with how they are portrayed. And so they're not allowed to be soft or gentle they have to put up a tough, they have to protect themselves as well. I, I'm seeing like all the complicated layers of this that we're trying to unpack. And many people have been trying to impact this for decades. But some of us are new to really, really, really going there in a serious way every day. I feel a lot of us really got to that point in 2020 where we're just like, this is our business and we're going to make it our business and we're going to figure this out.
1: I'm really glad people are asking those questions to themselves and things like that, you know, because it is a different experience and it is something that people need to question themselves on it. I think too, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say if I see a bunch of, I see a bunch of teenage boys, you know, making a lot of noise, I automatically have a reaction no matter what color they are, yeah. but, you know, that that's my own ageist thing, you know, and it's based on, yes, it's based on the media. It's based on sociology that I know a pack of teenage boys is probably more likely to be a problem than a pack of old ladies. You know, I could outrun a pack of old ladies yeah. old, <laughs> on, on a good day, you know, so. yeah. <laughs> You know, and I'm not trying to make light of it, I'm just saying I think we all need to examine those assumptions that we make and and what are we acting on? I had and this is just going to sound silly, but it's true. I used to have a big fat, black labrador dog And when I was trying to find an apartment, people would say, oh, you have a big black dog and people would get scared and they wouldn't rent to me, you know, and I'd be walking down the street and cops would undo the holster on their gun if they saw us coming. Now, anyone who's had a lab knows that they're the friendliest dogs ever. We used to call this dog the bottomless bottom. Anybody walked in, she'd show you her tummy and roll over. (laughs) 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 You know, but it's just what are people's conceptions of these things? You know what I mean? I see a big black man. I see a big black dog. What assumptions are people really going on, you know? And mm-hmm. and I think, unfortunately, a lot of people suffer because of that.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think about the work of being... What would it be like to be a big black man walking down the street and the need you feel to make other people comfortable in your presence? That's extra work. And... I think it's really important to think about these things because there is a natural fear. Yes. A pack of teenage boys can take me down if they want to in a way that a group of middle-aged women could not. So I think there's what is appropriate fear and what is programmed fear and how do you start to pull that apart and what is based on your own experiences. If you have PTSD, you're going to bring a whole other layer to, you know, walk in the neighborhood This book is the subtitle for Orishas, Goddesses, and Voodoo Queens is The Divine Feminine and the African Religious Traditions. And you talk a lot about the divine feminine. And I'm wondering how that ties into, or if it does, what we're talking about
1: right now at all. I mean, I think so much of women's history was literally that, history, not her story, not information that came from women, about women that from that perspective, if we look throughout time, a lot of the information that was destroyed about these goddesses and things like that, a lot of things were suppressed. And it's, you know, it's sad to me that this is what I got again when I was growing up, that this is what was out there when my girls were young and I tried to give them positive Information about Oshun or Yamaya or any of the other female Orishas so they could understand them better and they could understand their history and their heritage and their selves better. And, and there was nothing. And it made me really sad, you know? And I'm glad that there is more out there now. There are more resources. There are more things out there for people to find. And I just wanted to have the book out there specifically about African-based gods and goddesses because... There's so many books about, you know, oh, here's the encyclopedia of all the goddesses throughout time, you know, and you'll get, like, one line about the African ones and then three pages about Athena or ISIS or something like that, (laughs) you know, so but sub-Saharan African, no, nothing, nothing at all. So I think that it's, it's just, I wanted to give them their space and, and, you know, the book could have been a hell of a lot longer, but I wanted to at least give people something that was in depth about them. A lot of the people too, like the, the part about voodoo queens, I think a lot of the, lost especially outside of very specific cultural areas in the book I talk about Queen Nanny who a lot of Jamaicans I mean she's on the money in Jamaica Nanny of the Maroons but a lot of people outside of there don't know that there was this great female warrior who was in Jamaica that helped escape slaves and indigenous people and led revolts and you know they say she shot bullets out of her tush like she just (laughs) I love these stories It's, it's just so amazing you know, but I never grew up hearing about that. I would have loved to hear about that when I was a kid. Oh my gosh, I would have thought that was great.
0: Yes, this is what I'm saying. It's expansive for everyone too. When you focus on the divine feminine, I've seen so many men gravitating toward goddesses. And it reminds me of what I was saying about as a white woman flipping through a fashion magazine, when I see a Black woman represented as a picture of beauty, it expands my own reality, my own sense of what's beautiful. When I see someone write a book like you have written, and you're talking about the divine feminine, I feel like that's expansive for everyone. It's expansive for men, too, to have a more complete picture of what divinity is.
1: Well, yeah, when I was trying to market it, obviously I thought that, you know, women or, or people who identify as women would be interested in it. But for me, it's it's also for anybody who has a woman as a partner or mother or a child or any of that, yes. you know, or who wants to recognize their own feminine side. You know, a lot of my godkids are LGBTQIA and, you know, they are, are on all sides of, of the spectrum of gender, you know, and I think that what we call all embrace these goddesses, in this way, as being just part of what exists in the universe.
0: Mm-hmm. And in a way that is respectful and beautiful. You yourself, you've been initiated in, am I getting this right? Haitian, is it Vodou? Vodou, Vodou yeah. Okay, so Haitian Vodou, New Orleans Voodoo, and Santeria. And you talk about Marie Laveau. These figures, the way they've been portrayed in the media, is often scary. These are scary things. So it's great that somebody can come in and say, no, these are beautiful things to learn about. And I think that your work is having that effect as well.
1: I hope so. That was my intention, that it didn't necessarily have to be scary. Obviously, there are spells and practices that are pretty hardcore, but we're talking about people that were enslaved. We're talking about people whose children were taken for them, people whose, you know, were getting whipped and beaten and raped and all of these things were happening to them. So obviously their magic is going to consist of things like, oh, well, how do I get rid of somebody in the middle of the night? You no, know, because somebody's going to come for me in the middle of the night if I don't get rid of them first. So there were a very heavily dependent on what people might call quote unquote evil spells you know as far as I'm concerned if somebody's raping my child anything I do is not evil it's just necessary really at that point so then that's where we go with that. But again, people didn't, don't really think of it because they don't contextualize these things. They don't really, oh, okay, well, this is a religion of people who were slaves, so stuff was really rough. They didn't have anything. So it's going to have to have stuff in there about how to, you know, how to get money from people, how to do away with people, how to all of these things, you know, yeah. because mm-hmm. it, it, they weren't at a level playing field. So they had to use voodoo and santo and all the other traditions to level the playing field.
0: It's protection magic. It's it's defense magic. I literally have a quote right here on my computer that I have been just kind of staring at and thinking about is something Malcolm X said. He said, anytime anyone is enslaved or in any way deprived of his liberty, if that person is a human being, as far as I am concerned, he is justified to resort to whatever methods necessary to bring about his liberty again. And I think you completely just nailed it. If your child is being raped, you're going to do everything you can to put a stop to that and perhaps to put an end to the rapist's life. And I think everybody can understand that.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that's one of the things that, I've really been, I guess, excited to see about the Black Lives Matter movement that people sort of understand. First of all, I'm not calling them riots. I'm calling them economic redistribution events. Mm. And, you know, (laughs) so... people see the need for going out and economically redistributing and protesting and making these kinds of waves in whatever means necessary because things are so extreme, because you could die if you're a black man and you passed a bad $20 bill, or that poor boy who used to play the violin for the Oh. dogs in the shelter. You know, Elijah, it's just so Elijah sad.
0: McQueen, he has my heart. My son has autism. I know a lot of people who are different, I will say, in a way that Elijah reminds me of. And that that just reinforced my commitment to being a part of Black Lives Matter as much as I can. And for me, that's mostly just amplifying other people's voices but whoa did that dry at home for me.
1: Yeah I mean because you can see what, if this was, you know, your son, you know? And and I think that's what people really need to think, that, no, you're not a black person, but if things were different, it could be your son. And it was somebody's son, unfortunately. Oh, yes. You know, and for those of us who are black people, it could be our kids, or it could be our mother or our father. Or, I mean, you know, we've already had to endure a lot of this, and, and we don't want it to continue. So there are people who are having extreme reactions to it. I don't necessarily agree 100% with every extreme reaction out there, but I understand how somebody could be driven to an extreme reaction under the circumstances.
0: Yeah, people are angry or scared or both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was really good. Can you tell people your URL for people that are on the go? I'm going to link to everything, but just for anybody who's listening while they're driving...
1: They can find me on my website, lilithdorsey.com, which is L I L I T H D O R S E Y.com. They can find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. They can, I'm going to be doing a lot of events, so check out my website there. If somebody wants to book a reading, they can book that through my website. So, yeah. Definitely. Check out
0: Love Magic. Check out Orisha's Goddesses and Voodoo Queens. Check out the African American ritual cookbook. You say that's available in ebook only now? Yes. Okay. That's one I can feel like people might want to go check out too. So if I can if I can get a link to that, I will link to that also. Cool. Yeah. So I always end by asking. What is one tip that you have for creating the kick-ass life of your dreams, preferably maybe involving magic or spirituality of some
1: kind? Well, you kind of touched on it before, protection magic. You know, I think that if your protection magic is solid, then you'll have what you need to get through and live a decent life. You know, I don't think anybody can get rid of all tragedy or trauma or problems with magic in all circumstances. But if you protect yourself well, you'll have the resources and the foundation to get everything done that you need.
0: Yeah, and to move about freely in your life, to me. It's, yeah. about, it's about being able to live your life, whatever you need to feel protected so you can go about your day and not
1: hide. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you for having me on. It was great.
0: And that's is my interview with Lilith Dorsey, the author of Arishas, Goddesses and Voodoo Queens. If you like this, go look at the show notes. Check out all the links. I should have maybe given you a heads up that the sound is wonky again. It's my microphone. I don't know what is going on with my microphone, but it like crackles in my ear in a way that makes it sound like I might electrocute myself at any second. <laughs> so I'm just very, very still. But right before the interview, we recorded actually just the first little section of the interview. And then it was like <coughs> all this static And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I I need to fix this. I don't know what's wrong with my my mic. And then it just kind of kept messing around. So I just unplugged the thing. I just unplugged it and we started over. And that's why there's a big distinction between me welcoming her onto the show and then the actual interview. (sighs) I hope I don't have to buy a new microphone. I think I just need to unplug everything and clean it and put it all back together. Maybe there's some dust in there. Fingers crossed. (laughs) I don't know, but hopefully you enjoyed the interview anyway. I hope all is well in your world. Until we meet again, much love to you. Peace.